Hello, I'm Doug Hadaway. You're listening to Achieve Great Things, where we talk about the power of strategy, science, and storytelling to help you achieve ambitious goals for people and the planet. In 2014, Ian Haney Lopez introduced an important new term to the field of political communication with his book, Dog Whistle Politics. In it, he explained how politicians have used carefully coded language to stir up racial resentment and anxiety to divide Americans and win elections. Political strategists and progressive leaders struggle to counter the insidious power of racial appeals in American politics. Now, Ian Haney Lopez is back with potentially powerful research-based solutions. In this episode of Achieve Great Things, we'll talk about insights and ideas from his new book, Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections, and Saving America. Ian, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are looking for productive, effective ways to communicate about race in America, so thanks for joining us. I'm delighted to be able to do so. For those who aren't familiar with the book or the concept of dog whistle politics, give us a short definition of that term. We often think of dog whistling as a coded message that is heard only by one audience and not by another, but I actually think that's just too general an interpretation um, because if, if you think about dog whistling that way, then it seems to apply to a lot of what the Democrats do, um, a lot of what politicians routinely do. I think it's more helpful to understand dog whistling in terms of the use of evocative imagery or phrases that gets people thinking in terms of racist stereotypes, mm. but that because it does not superficially uh, directly mention race, allows the dog whistle politician to deny that that's what they're doing. And now I say racist stereotypes, it could be stereotypes about gender or sexuality or about religion. The important point with dog whistling is it's an effort to use coded phrases to stimulate unacceptable social prejudices. And that's what distinguishes it from any sort of, you know, uh, political language that has a double meaning. Almost all political language has a double meaning. Mm -hmm. That's the point is not the code. The point is the intent to use the code to stimulate unacceptable social prejudices while denying that that's what you're doing. What are some examples um, of that kind of coded language? You might think in the race context of something like welfare queen. You might think in the immigration context talking about illegal aliens, uh, Muslim terrorists. Um, in the LGBTQ context, you might talk about, or the trans context, you might talk about, you know, we, I, I have nothing against trans people. We just need to protect our children from predators in the bathroom. Right. right? All of this sort of language seeks on its surface to sound neutral, and indeed it's often expressed and defended as quote-unquote common sense. Yet just underneath, you can see these poisonous stereotypes being triggered and pushed into the public conversation. And you write in Dog Whistle Politics about how particularly racial appeals have affected our politics and our lives. I think that's right. I think that if you, if you reflect back on American politics, probably the most central divide has been racism, um, more than gender, more than these other sort of social divisions, which, which are powerful. But it's race that has really remade uh, American government and the American economy over the last 50 years. And that gets us into the new book, 
um, mentioning of the economy. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, we're going to talk a lot about that, how race and class come together. But before we get into it, tell us the backstory of the new book. It came from a very thorough body of message research. The backstory is really that after I published Dog Whistle Politics in 2014, Donald Trump effectively seemed to read my critique as instead a how-to manual. Mm -hmm. And that made it clear that more research and more analysis was not going to be enough, that there had to be a concerted effort to figure out how to actually defeat Dog Whistle Politics. And I knew that the right, which has been employing this tactic for 50 years, is quite uh, instrumental, quite purposeful. They use focus groups, they use national polling, and it seemed like the way to figure out how to message to defeat dog whistling was to employ the same tactics against them. So I was very fortunate to be able to, to connect with Anat Shankar Osorio, a fabulous communication specialist, um, with Heather McGee, oh, uh, a incredible thought leader on racial and economic justice. We then ended up putting together a project. We called it the Race Class Narrative Project. We brought in SCIU, um, Celinda Lake, and Cornell Belcher, and we ran this big research project thinking about, with, with, with interviews and with focus groups and with national polling, really exploring how best to message in a way that could defeat dog whistle politics. The book starts with a story from that research. It's about two friends, Matt and Tom, who sat down to talk about race. And it sounded like a very painful conversation to listen to, but something that Matt wrote down offered a powerful insight. Tell us about that. So when we first started, it just wasn't clear how you could talk to most Americans about race and class. Uh, and so we conducted these focus groups, and, and one of them that we conducted was with two white guys in Ohio, Matt and Tom, not their real names, but changed for the purposes of, of the, the, the book in this interview. And we wanted to figure out, okay, how are we going to do this? And I was a little worried. I mean, you know, sort of having been a, a student of racism in America for a long time, I expected to encounter racism in, uh, from these two white guys in Ohio. Um, and to be frank, I was not at all disappointed. Um, and so as I heard, as, 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 as the interview started, now I'm watching, I'm sitting in my office in Berkeley, I'm watching remotely um, over the web, and I'm just demoralized because I'm thinking, you know, they're, they're talking about welfare queens, they're talking about unsafe neighborhoods, they're, they're talking about, you know, partly they're using geography as a proxy for race, but every so often they say, and it just so happens, those are black and brown people. I mean, it's clear that they're thinking in racial terms. And I'm wondering to myself, how, how are we gonna, how are we gonna overcome racism? And yet, as the conversation progressed, a couple of things uh, de developed. One, though they were racist, they also expressed racially egalitarian views. They also, for example, talked about how beautiful it was that their children didn't see race. And they extolled the ideal of a society in which people could see each other as people and as equals, irrespective of the color of their skin. So they, so it, and, and this was a major epiphany for me mm. that that many people simultaneously draw on racist stereotypes and also hold racially egalitarian views and they're toggling between the two. And, and the insight here is 
for progressives, we don't have to break down the mountain of racism that's out there because racially egalitarian views are already held by the vast majority of Americans, including the majority of whites. The task then is not to disassemble racism, but to activate people's racially egalitarian views and show how those uh, can help them in their own lives. And this connects to the second insight. The second thing that, that Matt and Tom did as they were talking about racism, they talked about racism as a divide and conquer strategy. Mm -hmm. They talked about the way in which elites intentionally seek to set us apart. And when we came back to them and said, well, do you think that elites intentionally divide us to, to, to win elections, uh, to, uh, you know, f uh, to win power? They said, absolutely. They, they, they agreed with that very, very quickly. And this opened up a whole new avenue. Rather than approaching whites with a message that says, racism is fundamentally about a conflict between whites and people of color, and we need to tamp down on it, uh, that sort of message that implicitly uh, impugns whites as themselves racist, we could make much greater headway if we said racism is a weapon of the rich and it's being used against all of us because that's the sort of message that they intuitively agreed with and also it's a framing that allows many whites to see themselves as harmed by racism and also as valued allies in a cross-racial movement to take power back for working families. You explored different approaches to communicating about race. That was a powerful insight, but you tested that along with other approaches, um, which included avoiding the topic altogether. Tell us about the different angles you tried out. To understand what's been happening, the first thing to recognize is that dog whistle politics has been a 50-year pattern, and mm -hmm. in that time, Democrats have had to figure out how to respond and simply have not done a good job. Um, so one of the early intuitions was, and, and, and you can see this happening as early as the late 1960s, uh, as, as early as 1970, it was clear that many of the people talking in code about forced busing, the silent majority, law and order, had just a few years before been outspoken racist, had been quite explicit in some of the language and some of the racist language they used. Now, the primary example would be somebody like George Wallace, who came to prominence by declaring his undying support for segregation, mm -hmm. but very quickly pivoted to talking about states' rights as a dog whistle. It seemed intuitive, it seemed appropriate that these people like Wallace and then like Richard Nixon be called out as racist. It was clear that this was thinly veiled racism. And yet, calling them out as racist backfired because it ended up, many people heard their warnings about law and order or about forced busing. Many people heard that as common sense rather than as racism. And when Democrats said of Richard Nixon, for example, that's racist, it very quickly turned into an advantage for Nixon who could then say to his base, see, you're worried about your neighborhood, but when you're worried about your neighborhood or you're worried about crime, those Democrats call you a bigot, and you know you're not a bigot. This helps you understand that Democrats are against you, and they're really on the side of the people who riot in the streets. Right? And mm -hmm. so that, that became the dynamic. Democrats realized pretty quickly that's not going to work, and so they thought to themselves, well, if we can't, can't name it directly, maybe we have to stay silent. 
the stay silent approach was a stay silent on racism approach that said to itself, race divides us, it divides Democrats, maybe we can build unity by focusing on things all of us need, health care, uh, a living wage, um, often economic things. This seems plausible on its face, but, but once you understand that this sort of race-neutral neutral message is itself a racial strategy, you can immediately see the weakness of it. If it's a racial strategy designed to respond to the effectiveness of dog whistling by ignoring dog whistling, the logic begins to come into question. I mean, no, no, no basketball team says to itself, hey, the star player on the other side is incredibly good at making baskets. Let's leave that person unguarded. It's right. just a, why would you think that's a good approach? And, and then there's this problem too. If there are constant racial assaults against people of color and your decision is to not address them, then not only are you leaving the star player on the other side unguarded, but you're relegating your own star player to the bench. You're saying to people of color, mm, we're going to push your issues to the back burner mm. in a way that leaves a lot of people unmotivated, feeling discouraged, mm -hmm. feeling taken for granted. And so this, this let's stay silent approach, it didn't work either. Bill Clinton ultimately solved that problem with a, with a third approach. He said, well, we can't challenge it directly. We can't stay silent. Let's imitate it. And so Bill Clinton wins by adopting some of the dog whistle themes that the Republicans had used, end welfare as a way of life, crack down on crime. Well, whose way of life is welfare and who are the criminals? Uh, there is now in 2019 no real possibility that Democrats are going to try that third response. So Democrats are left toggling between or, or attempting to do both of the first two. The racist call-out strategy, let's call Trump a bigot, let's say that he's a white nationalist, let's say that his real agenda is to make America white again. And even people as um, politically cautious as Nancy Pelosi are using that sort of language. Um, or there's also an effort to say, let's not go after the dog whistling directly, let's promote economic populism, uh, and that's the way to build unity. We tested both of those approaches, and both of them, uh, you know, here's the good news, both of them are pretty effective with the Democratic base, mm -hmm. which is about 23% of all voters. That means that both of those messages are working well at this stage of the Democratic campaign when you have a slew of candidates competing to win primaries that depends on winning the votes of the most engaged Democratic voters. Mm -hmm. These messages will not work well at the general election stage. Indeed, we found that these messages, uh, a colorblind economic populism message or a race forward uh, message that implicitly challenges white racism, these messages lost against a Republican message of dog whistle racial fear mm -hmm. in the crucial 60% of Americans who constitute persuadable voters. And fusing race and class, as the subtitle of your book says, is what won the day in, in your testing. So explain that to us, the race-class approach. What does that entail? The race-class approach is race-forward. Let's begin with that. It, it is a direct effort 
to attack the right's racism. And, and, and let me be clear. Democrats have thought they could either challenge racism or stay silent. They didn't understand that there was a third alternative, challenge racism in a different way. Mm-hmm. And so this is an approach that challenges racism in a different way. And this is the key paradigm shift in how we think about racism. Rather than challenge racism as an expression of a fundamental conflict between whites and non-whites, a frame that the Republicans themselves want to promote, this approach challenges racism as a con by corrupt billionaires. And nobody better embodies this than Donald Trump. Donald Trump makes it very easy to visualize the dynamic. It allows Democrats to say corrupt billionaires like Donald Trump win votes by getting you to fear people of color, to chance a build a wall and ban all Muslims, but then he and his corrupt cabinet turn around and they pass tax cuts for billionaires like themselves. Right? And people right, so people can see this dynamic. Notice we want to be clear, Donald Trump is a, a, is a, a sort of embodies this, can can be used to personify this dynamic, but this is much bigger than Trump. Yep. The party of big business for the last half century has won power by stoking racial division. It's, um, uh, this is not good advice as messaging, but this is certainly a pithy summation. Racial division has become the principal weapon in the class war the rich are winning. And naming that, naming that uh, allows the broadest possible progressive coalition it appeals to whites. Many whites deeply sense that racial conflict is tearing this country apart. The right says yes, and that's because there's a war between whites and people of color. The left needs to address the depth of the conflict and the source of it. And its most effective way of doing that is to say, yes, there's conflict, but look behind the conflict. Who fuels it? Who funds it? Who Mm -hmm. profits from it? And when you frame the racial conflict that way, it allows whites to see that they themselves are endangered not by people with different skin colors or or unfamiliar surnames, but instead by greedy elites sowing division. The real threat in their lives come from Trumps, Mercers, Koch brothers, giant corporations who fund division and then turn around and cut social security, cut medical care, cut health care, erode pensions, destroy unions, uh, uh, continue to pillage the environment. That's the real threat in people's lives. I also want to be clear, and this is a very important point. Many people of color, especially many racial justice activists, react with some initial cynicism about a race class turn they wonder whether this is just an effort to appeal to whites. And and I have a two-part answer. The first part is, is this an effort to appeal to whites? Hell yes. We are not going to take power back for working people without the support of a strong plurality and probably a majority of whites. We need to bring whites into a progressive cross-racial movement. Second response. The problem is not appealing to whites. The problem is when Democrats appeal to whites by sacrificing people of color. That's the issue. 
there's good reason to be cynical about democratic efforts to do that, that's precisely what the Democrats have done over the last several decades. Mm -hmm. The stay silent about dog whistle politics is an effort to appeal to white voters by sacrificing people of color. Certainly Bill Clinton's imitation of dog whistling was precisely that, a sacrificing of people of color, of communities of color, of exposing communities of color to cuts in the social safety net and to massive policing in an effort to appeal to white voters. So if racial justice activists respond by saying, we're worried, this is another effort to throw people of color under the bus mm -hmm. to win a few white votes, they should be worried. Democrats have too long a track record here, but that is not what the race class narrative does. The race class narrative, or to switch for a second to my own biography, I come out of a racial justice background. I come to this analysis trying to understand the origins of mass incarceration, the origins of police violence in communities of color, the origins of mass deportation. And the origins of these dynamics, these, these massive campaigns of state violence against people of color are not primarily, not directly in white racism across the culture. They are primarily and directly rooted in dog whistle politics itself. Politicians who campaign on messages of racial threat and then need to govern accordingly. Right. And that means the proximate solution, the best way forward, is a cross-racial coalition that defeats these dog whistle politicians. And you found that calling that out in the way that you described resonates with people of color and with white guys like Matt and Dom. That this is, this is the really hopeful, transformative aspect of the, this race class approach. It brings in whites, but it also communicates to people of color a clear route forward and gives them confidence that whites will join in this cross-racial solidarity. So let me contrast two different messages. We did a number of focus groups with Latinos and with African Americans, and when we went to them and we said in generic terms, hey, we should all join together, more or less they called bullshit. They said, why is that gonna happen? We don't believe it. Everybody's always talking to us about joining together. Mm -hmm. You know, but nobody ever actually gets on the unity bus. It's something nice to say. It sounds pretty. Everybody's going to take care of themselves. Listen to that last line. Everybody's going to take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. When we turned around and we said, racism is a weapon against all of us and we're all getting hurt, what we heard back is, we think that's right. We think whites are getting hurt too. Not in the same way. Nobody thinks whites are getting hurt in the same way that people of color are but people of color could see that whites are getting hurt by racial division. And then what if we said, we're all getting hurt, whites have an interest in joining a cross-racial movement together with whites, blacks, browns, other people of color, we can take this country back. What we heard back in these focus groups with African-Americans and Latinos is, yes, we can. If we understand that whites have their own interests for joining us, we believe they mm -hmm. will, and once they do, no one can stop us. And, and indeed, we, I heard back one, one comment that I, that I thought was just really uh, incisive. It was this idea that the people with power, concentrated wealth understands the power of people when they come together undivided by race. Mm -hmm. And they, if they understand it, we need to understand it too because that's what they fear. They don't want people to be able to form alliances across uh, racial lines because it's precisely when we do form those alliances that we have the power to take our country back from corporations and concentrated wealth. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the language. I've got your book here. 
um, opened it to anatomy of a race class narrative. I think people, our listeners would like to hear, so what's the message? Why don't you walk us through that and just comment a bit on the language? So I'm gonna go back and forth between the message and then an analysis. So the message starts with something like this. Regardless of where we come from, what our color is, or how we worship, every family wants what's best for their children. Now, part of the dynamic here is simply it's good messaging practice to start with something positive. But the other dynamic that's particular to the race class approach is that this message centrally names race. It says we're gonna talk about race, we're gonna talk about color, we're not gonna hide from it. Mm -hmm. Next. But today, certain politicians and their greedy lobbyists are putting all of our families at risk. This sort of language is important because it says yeah, you know, we, we all want the same thing, but this isn't a sort of a kumbaya message. There really is a danger, there really is a threat, but the threat is concentrated wealth in the way it's hijacked uh, our government. Next. They rig the rules to enrich themselves and avoid paying their fair share of taxes while they defund our schools and threaten seniors with cuts to Medicare and Social Security. It's important to make clear to people that the threat from concentrated wealth comes when they have the power to hijack government. Then, then they turn around and point the finger for our hard times at new immigrants, even tearing families apart and losing children. This sort of sentence, this sort of uh, a statement, connects up the, the dynamic in which all of the scaremongering about immigrants um, uh, build the border or about terrorists, you know, we need to ban all Muslims or about African-Americans, uh, crime is out of control, our, our, our cities are, um, uh, are, are violent places. All of these messages are simply theater. They're theater with high human costs, but they're theater designed to scare people when the, when the scare itself is the con. That's the fraud. Finally, when we reject their scapegoating and come together across racial differences, we can make this a nation we're proud to leave all of our kids, whether we're white, black, and brown, from down the street or across the globe. Two important points here. First, we found that simply calling out the right for division wasn't sufficient. Indeed, that seemed to be its own exercise in finger pointing. It was very important to say, therefore division and we stand for coming together. People wanted that positive message and they wanted to hear an affirmative message that says we're for joining together precisely because they're sick of the division. So calling out division, not enough, that itself is divisive. Calling for coming together, that's the key. Second, listen to the phrase, whether we're white, black, and, or brown from down the street or across the globe. What's crucial there is the inclusion of whites. 99% of our conversations about race focus on, uh, focus on racism as something that harms people of color, something that implicitly whites are guilty of. That's the frame that the right wants. The right wants a debate about whether whites are guilty of oppressing people of color or not. What we want is to say racism is harming all of us and all of us, whites included, benefit from cross-racial solidarity. And it's very important to make clear to whites 
that this conversation about racism is not the typical conversation about racism in which they feel implicitly criticized and they become defensive. This is a very different sort of conversation about racism, one in which they themselves are harmed by it and in which they have a stake in fighting racism against people of color. So it is what I'd call an aspirational narrative. It starts on the positive note, shared aspirations of unity in our work across the country. We've found that people of all backgrounds are upset about the division in the country, and there's a, lot, a yearning for unity. But then reframes the problem in a, very, in a way that is inclusive. That's a powerful thing to do. So there's the language. There's a lot, as we know, in communications to go from well-tested and crafted words on a page to actual execution and messengers and content and all of that. So there's a lot more to talk about around this. Um, which we don't have time for, but you did, um, the book ends on a note of cautious optimism, your chapter, Darkest Before the Dawn, sort of at the end. Um, what gives you hope? I think it's important to understand that we are all driven to win in 2020. We're all looking stra for strategies to do that. But to win in 2020, we have to solve a dynamic, we have to defeat a weapon that has been used against us for half a century. And that weapon in turn links to a 400 year history of race and class in America. Another way of saying that is, we are at a pivotal moment in the history of the United States. We're at a pivotal moment in which, for the first time in the history of this country, it may be possible to convince a majority of all people, including a majority of whites, that the greatest danger all of us face, all of our families face, is racism against people of color. It's racism against people of color that keeps us divided. Uh, it's racism against, or let me start a different way. We are at a moment of profound entwined crises in America. Mm. These are crises of democracy, of capitalism, of the environment. In order to solve these crises, the American political imagination has shifted at the speed of hurricane winds. People now are saying, we need to reform what's happening with democracy. We need to drive money out of politics. People now are saying, we need massive economic investments. We need to regulate capitalism. People mm. now are saying, we need to invest trillions in averting climate collapse. Fabulous. In order for any of this to happen legislatively, that will require supermajorities. Mm. Demographically, those supermajorities must be cross-racial. Standing in the way, dog whistle politics. Yeah. It's dog whistling, it's racial division, it's the intentional stoking of racial division by economic titans that stops us from solving the major crises we face. If we can overcome dog whistling, if we can build a multiracial movement that is also class conscious, that understands how racism is being used by economic titans to rewrite the rules of society and economy and government, then and only then can we solve the major crises we face. But beyond solving those crises, a multiracial class conscious movement puts us back on the trajectory that reflects and honors the founding of this country. We were founded with high ideals never realized, but we've marched closer and closer towards them. An ideal in which 
people are equal, an ideal in which uh, uh, there is liberty to thrive, an ideal in which government is by and for the people. We've always fallen short, but over the last 200 years of this country, we've come closer. That progress was arrested and, in a sense, reversed over the last 50 years. We have, an, and, and we can see now the damage, the harm, the, the, the danger we all face when the movement towards a government by and for the people is hijacked into a government by and for big money. We can solve that problem but put ourselves back on, on the trajectory of really building a society in which all of us of every color has the best possible opportunity to thrive. And when we do, that's our chance to create the sort of society we want for our families. The book is Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections, and Saving America. Thank you, Ian Haney-Lopez, for this important work, and thanks for talking with us about it. I'm very pleased to, to do so, and thank you for helping to share this message.